So Hebrews chapter nine, um, we're excited about this. Um, I read a quote a few years ago from John Maxwell that, that really stuck out to me. He was talking about our thought life. And he said this, he said, if you're willing to change your thinking, you can change your feelings. If you change your feelings, you can change your actions. And changing your actions based on good thinking can actually change your life. And man, I, that, that is so true. Because our thoughts, what, what goes through our mind is just so powerful. They shape our feelings, they shape our actions, and they shape our lives. They can also shape how we act towards God. See, because what you think about God dictates what you feel about God. What you feel about God dictates um, your actions towards God. And all of those things ultimately shape your life. Now, I grew up in some really great churches uh, in Michigan, Texas, Florida, different places I've lived, New Jersey, Virginia. Um, And I loved my pastors. I really loved the student pastors that I had. They were great men. And I had some great friendships. Some of them I still uh, are connected to to this day. I, I learned a ton about the Bible. I learned to love God. I really learned to love his church. However, in most of these churches, there was a, a huge focus on behavior, my behavior, which was my ability to keep the rules, some which were in the Bible and some that were not in the Bible. And, and, and the focus was on the idea that God's acceptance and his love for me was based upon my ability to behave right and my ability to keep the rules. And so that thinking about God created some feelings about God and those feelings about God turned into actions towards God and those all shaped the early years of my life. And so these are some of the thoughts that I had about God in my younger years. And quite honestly, if you grew up like I did, you know it takes a lot of years to even detox from a lot of this stuff. But so some of my early thoughts kind of went like this. No matter what I do, I will just, I just can't measure up. I'll just never be enough. I cannot measure up. So what I did was I became a keeper of external list. Every, so every, everything I do um, every day is, is to about to stay right with God. Every day, everything, uh, every day I don't do some things that, that to help me keep right with God. And honestly, it was exhausting. I got a list here to keep me right. I got a list that I don't do so that I stay in favor. And it just wore me out because no matter how well I did at keeping my list, it just never felt like it was enough. I just never measured up. Here's another thought. No matter how well I behave or how much I obey, God just always seems upset with me. He just always seems to be angry with me, or at least I was hearing that. Here's another thought. I'm never quite certain where I stand with God. And I can just tell you this. I probably prayed the sinner's prayer throughout my life over a thousand times. Maybe some of you have done that as well. Because there was this thought in my mind, what if the charismatics down the street who who don't believe in eternal security, what if they're actually right? What if I lost it in the midst of some sin and I'm just going to pray again to make sure I've got it. And so you live with these feelings of, of uncertainty and insecurity about God. Here's another thought. There, there's no way that God can keep forgiving me of my sin. I just keep messing up. And so I'm guilty and I'll just never be able to, to solve this sin problem that I have. So I'll just live with this shame. Now here's the thing. Even though I attended churches that taught that we were living under a new covenant, 
Somehow I grabbed hold of a lot of old covenant thinking and, and that created some feelings that turned into actions that really shaped my life. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, asking, what is this old covenant you're talking about? Can you explain that? Well, the old covenant was a covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel and it's found in the Old Testament. It included 613 laws that were given to the Jews in the first five books, which is called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And it, and it included instructions on worship, which included an earthly tabernacle, and had, which had a lot of rituals and, and sacrifices. But we found out from Hebrews chapter 8, which we were in last week, in verse 5, that they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. In other words, everything about the old covenant was, was, was a copy and a shadow of the original and of things to come. And it all pointed to Jesus Christ who filled the old covenant when he sacrificed his life on a cross to make a once and for all payment for our sins. And today, Jesus Christ has not only entered into heaven to represent his followers before the Father, but he has come to live inside of us. Now, for your information, just so you know, most Jewish people have rejected the idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah that had been promised in, in the Old Testament. So for a majority of Jewish people, the Old Covenant is still in full effect today. On the other hand, the New Covenant was a covenant that was made between God and followers of Jesus. And as we learned from Hebrews chapter 8 last week, it is a better covenant. You say, why? Why is it a better covenant? Well, the New, Te- the new Covenant is about Jesus making things right with God on our behalf, and then us learning to receive his love and rest in his righteous not, righteousness, not in our own righteousness. The old covenant was all about appeasing God to be right with God or to get a blessing from God, but it was a flawed covenant that was impossible for the Jewish people to actually follow. So the question is, what happens when we hold on to an old covenant way of thinking? What happens when it creeps into our thinking and our feelings and all this and that? Well, it does the same thing that it did back to the Jews before Jesus. It it puts a weight on you that you cannot handle. It literally crushes you spiritually. It takes, it it takes, where did that come from? (laughs) It's the beat down from yesterday. That's what, it takes the focus off of the finished work of Jesus, and it puts it back on you. And if you grew up in a church world similar to mine, then you end up dealing with a bunch of extra rules that are outside of the Bible um, that the church world has, has created over the years. And all of that ends up manifesting itself in one of two ways. You either become a spiritual pretender or you become a spiritual performer. Pretender or performer. And, and so here's, here's, here's some of the thoughts that, that basically kind of go through a spiritual pretender's mind, okay? There's no way I can be right with God. I can't, I, I'm, I'm just tired of trying. Therefore, what I'm going to do is, in my mind, is as long as everyone else thinks I'm living for God, then I'm good. As long as I've got everyone around me fooled, then I'm okay, just as long as every, everyone thinks I'm living for God. Or my sin is really not that bad. Okay, it is bad, by the way. It, but it's not, in my mind, it, pretender, it's not. Now, here's another thought. I can't keep all these rules, but at least I'm not as bad as the people next to me. 
I mean, you know, here's my rules, their rules, I'm not as bad as they are. And as long as I'm not as bad as they are, then I'm okay, okay? That's a spiritual pretender. Here's what a spiritual performer thinks. If I work hard enough to please God and behave well enough by keeping all of these rules, then I'll earn God's favor. I'll I'll be accepted by him. I will be right in his eyes. I will actually get more blessings than everyone else. Now, here's the problem with both of those systems of thought. They both take the focus off of Jesus and they put it all back on us. And all of that just zaps the joy and the delight out of following Jesus, leaving all of us to wallow in a joyless, dutiful obedience. It's a way of of thinking that completely minimizes the gospel and, and it forces us, causes us to try to add something to the finished work of Jesus. And even though Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that we have, we've been made complete through our union with Jesus Christ, a spiritual pretender or a spiritual performer says, no, 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 there, there, there just has to be more. It, can't, it, it just can't be that easy. It has to be, there has to be more to make things right with God. It's a mindset that says, I should be able to get myself in better standing with God than the guy next to me because I'm doing more for God. It's, 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 it's old covenant thinking. And it's a mindset that, that is still, that still embraces a covenant that the writer of Hebrews actually says in Hebrews that is obsolete, it is growing old, and it's ready to disappear. It was a covenant that was, it was holy, it was righteous, it was good, but it didn't produce change in people. If anything, it just made people more self-righteous. Because as long as I can be better than the person next to me, because I can outperform them, then I'm going to be better and self-righteous. Or it, it causes us to be buried with guilt and shame. And quite honestly, what I've watched people do and what I've watched happen to so many people over the years is that when the pretending and the performing just becomes too much of a burden to handle, they just end up bolting from church and they walk away from the Christian faith because they're like, I'm done trying. And I, quite honestly, have done both of those in my life. Well, if you are here today, okay, and you are just completely worn out from pretending, you are worn out from performing, maybe you have bolted, but you're here today because it's Thanksgiving and someone invited you, um, I just want you to know that I have good news for you, okay? I have good news for you because in Hebrews chapter 8, just kind of going back to last week a little bit in 10 through 12, the writer quotes the Old Testament prophet, prophet Jeremiah and he announces to these Hebrew readers that the Lord is making a new covenant with his people. And this new covenant would be a better covenant than the old one. You say, how, how would the new covenant be better? How could, it be, how could it possibly be better? Well, it would be a covenant that focused more on internal power and motivation rather than external lists and rules. It would be a covenant that was based on a a relationship with God that was close and personal rather than one that created fear and, and created distance. It was a covenant that provided confidence and assurance instead of insecurity and uncertainty. It was a confident that, a covenant that emphasized 
forgiveness and mercy instead of failure and just wrong, wrongdoing. This new covenant would no longer be about striving to find acceptance and self-worth by keeping an impossible list of rules called the law. Instead, it was now about finding acceptance and worth in a savior named Jesus who actually fulfilled the law by providing what the law demanded, which was a perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. This new, law, new covenant was no longer about trying to impress God by right living. It was now about resting in a savior who actually became our righteousness. And so today I want you to know, Christ follower, child of God, you don't have to pretend You don't have to perform because today we are in right standing with God because of Jesus. And you can't do anything more to improve upon that standing. And anything that you do is just going to wear you out. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is just so passionate about in chapters 8, 9, and 10. The writer of Hebrews is just trying, he's pleading, he's trying to help his, his writers to change their thinking about the old covenant. The old covenant wasn't sinful. It just wasn't the real deal. It wasn't broken. It just wasn't the best. And so the writer, he's, he is pleading with the readers of this letter to let it go and embrace a better covenant, a new covenant. Now, for those of you who maybe you're not familiar with where we've been in this, in, in, in this, um, this whole series, let me just remind you what's happening here when this letter was written, okay? It, it is written in early first, first century uh, um, Christianity, it's written to first century believers who were, who were being driven from their homes and their cities for, for trusting and embracing Jesus. They were forced into hiding. They were being persecuted. They were, they were tortured. They were even killed for their faith. And so under extreme pers- pressure and persecution, many of them begin to fall away from their commitment to following Jesus. And they begin to go back to Judaism which was all about holding on to the old covenant with all of its rules and its system of sacrifices through human priests. And it was about going back to this earthly tabernacle with all of its symbols and rituals. And so the Jewish people, these, these early, early Christians who were into Judaism, that's how they grew up, and then they, yet they, were, they found Jesus as the Messiah. They were running back to all of that. And, and why not? Think about this for a moment. Following Jesus up to this point was dangerous and it was very unfamiliar. They, they didn't know where this was going to go. Jesus had left. I mean, people are dying around them. And, and so going back to Judaism was safe. It was, it was familiar. And that's what these early Hebrews were beginning to think. If I just go back to what I left, then I can start to live again. If I, if I go back to my home, I'll get my family back. And, and, and maybe I'll be Re, you know, embraced and they'll forgive me, you know, man, maybe the pretending or performing really wasn't that bad after all. Somehow, if I go back, I can actually go back to the tabernacle where I used to worship and then things maybe will calm down in my life. If I can get back to the rituals and the symbols of the old covenant, then, then I'll feel safe again and familiar. See, Jesus offers freedom from the guilt and shame of not being able to keep a list of external rules. He offers real life. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. He offers a forgiveness and a salvation that just cannot be earned. He offers real hope and security for life. He offers eternal life. But listen, make no mistake about it. Even today, being a follower of Jesus can be lonely. Some of you 
students go to schools, you, you feel pretty lonely. Some of you who are in the, in the workplace, you, you feel pretty lonely at times. It, it, it can be dangerous. It can bring persecution. And for these early followers and the scores of others that would follow them for, for decades and decades and centuries, it, it could actually mean death. And for many, many of these believers in, in their mind, after all this, the, the cost was just too much. And this was the thinking. It was the thought process, the thinking that permeated the minds of these first century Christians. And so under extreme persecution, this thinking drove their feelings and their feelings turned into actions which began to shape their life and they were falling away from their commitment to following Jesus. And as we learned in Hebrews 6, some of them actually began to harden their hearts towards Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is desperately trying to redirect the thoughts of these early first century believers back to the greatness of Jesus, back to the supremacy of Jesus, back to the superiority of Jesus. And he is saying to them, he's greater. He's greater than your suffering. He's greater than your doubts. He offers a greater hope. He, uh, he actually ushered in a greater covenant. And now he's saying to these readers, he offers a greater way of thinking. Because why? Because our thoughts are so powerful, especially our thoughts about God. What you think about God dictates what you feel about God. What you feel about God dictates your actions towards God. And all of that is going to shape your life. And so with that in mind, the, reader, the writer, he begins to shift his focus from the Old Covenant to the Old Testament tabernacle. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, I'm not going to read the next few verses. I'm just going to take a moment and describe it to you and I'll put a couple pictures on the screen. This was kind of a, an image of what the actual tabernacle looked like. So think about, you know, being back in the day in the Old Testament, even going into the New Testament. That's kind of what they saw, all right? They had an outer courtyard uh, with... You walked in, had an altar of sacrifice. Beyond that was, a, was a, a laver. Then there was a tent set up in the upper part of the courtyard, and that was the tabernacle. And in the first section, um, which people could walk, a priest could walk into, um, there was a lampstand, there was a table with sacred bread, and that section was called the holy place. And so weekly, these priests would go in and they would make sacrifices. But the second section, only one person could go into. It was the high priest. And in that second section of the tent, there was the golden altar of incense. There was an, uh, an Ark of the Covenant covered in gold. Inside the Ark was uh, a golden jar that was filled up with manna. There was Aaron's rod which budded and the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. All right, Verse 5, it says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The writer says, I'm not going to go into detail about it for whatever reason. The Jewish people loved the tabernacle because everything about it had great significance to them. It contained some of their greatest treasures of their history, especially the Ark of the Covenant. Now, quite honestly, I'd like to see the Ark of the Covenant, right? And we, I, I, nobody really knows where it is today, but I think how cool would it be to actually hold a jar of manna all right. I mean, I'd like to see the actual tablets of stone that contain the Big Ten, the, the Ten Commandments. All right. How awesome would that be? 
Then the writer continues on about what took place in the tabernacle. He says in verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest can go, and he goes but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So priests would go into the holy place, the first part of the, 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 the tabernacle. He'd go in there on a regular weekly basis. But as we just read, only the high priest could actually go into what was called the Holy of Holies. And only once a year, and he couldn't go in there unless he had a blood offering. And so once a year, he would, he would offer a blood sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. And the, the Jewish people still celebrate that. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur. The date changes. It's usually in September, October. Verse 8. But this, the Holy Spirit indicates, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of of reformation. You're like, what is that talking about? Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Nothing wrong with the duties performed by the priests, okay? But they had two limitations. Number one, the ritual, all of it, doesn't actually change a person from within. And the second regulation, or or, excuse me, limitation, is that the ritual actually represented something of greater importance and it was only a symbol. It wasn't the real thing. The whole ritual... The sacrifice, everything that was happening, it was special, it was beautiful. They loved to talk about it and celebrate it, but it lacked power. Verse 9 says it couldn't perfect the conscience of a worshiper. In other words, the sacrifice didn't have the power to free someone's mind from thinking that they were still guilty of sin. It didn't matter how many cows died, how many goats died, how many sheep died. It didn't matter. People still felt like it just wasn't enough because it wasn't. And the question that this writer is bringing up is how in the world can you serve God effectively if you're always walking around full of guilt and shame thinking God is angry at you? And the answer is you can't. You couldn't do it then and you can't do it today. You can't. That's why the writer says in verse 10 that the rituals were imposed until a time of reformation. In other words, this ritual was only valid until a new, a new arrangements were made by the establish of a new covenant. The symbols, the rituals, I mean, they were beautiful. They're still celebrated, but ultimately, they just couldn't get the job done. They lacked power. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, it's funny because we, we as humans, we still love our symbols. We still love our rituals. We still, I mean, yesterday, college football is a huge ritual for most of America, especially the South. But sometimes we become more attached to the symbol than the reality it actually represents. I mean, think about this for a moment. How many people wear, you know, wear crosses around their neck on a chain or, or they get a cross tattooed somewhere on their body? Maybe to make them you know, bring good luck or or maybe they think it it brings them closer to God. But listen, that cross is nothing more than an empty symbol if we don't understand and embrace the reality of what that cross actually means. 
what it actually stands for. And these early believers in the book of Hebrews, they're facing extreme persecution and their thinking is, if I could just get back to the tabernacle, if I could just get back to the rituals, if I could just get back to some good old-fashioned tabernacle worship, down home, then I'll be able to live with myself again. If I could just get back, things will be better. But the writer, the writer says the tabernacle, oh, it was beautiful, but, but with all its symbols and rituals, with, they're just external things that lack the power to really change a life. And what even the Jewish people didn't know and some of them still don't know today is everything in that tabernacle represented something more to come. It was a copy or a shadow of the real thing. Only Jesus had the power to really change a life. And here's the key point. You cannot, by doing something external, solve a problem that is internal. You couldn't then, you can't now. You cannot do something, you cannot, by doing something external, solve a problem that is internal. So how does Jesus offer a greater way of thinking? Let's read verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered on, or excuse me, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Here's what the writer's saying. Tabernacle that Jesus entered into, the real one was not made with human hands, but it was a perfect tabernacle of heaven. Jesus entered into the very presence of God. Jesus did not come before God as a sinful human priest, but instead as a sinless high priest. The blood that he brought with him to the altar was not the blood of a bull or of a goat or of a sheep. It was the, it was the blood. It was, it, he, he, he brought his own blood. It was his own. His sacrifice wasn't just a once in a year temporary solution, but it was a permanent once and for all solution. And you say, what was the result? Well, verse 12 says it. He secured eternal redemption. What does that mean? John chapter 8 verse 24 tells us that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Anyone who sins. Who sins? We all sin. Everyone has sinned. We're a slave to sin. Only the blood of Jesus can set a slave person, a person who's enslaved, only the blood of Jesus can set them free from the power of sin. Only his blood could redeem the condemned from the eternal death sentence that sin had over us. What, does, what, what did his blood cleanse? Well, well ver, verse 14 says, the conscience from dead works. What does that mean? Well, let me explain this. Earlier I talked about the impact that the old covenant had on the thinking and the feelings that the Jews had about God. No matter what I do, quite honestly, it's the same feelings I had. No matter what I do, I'll never measure up. I will never be enough. It's just never enough. No matter how much I obey, God always seems angry or distant. I'm, and beyond that, I'm not quite sure where I stand with God. Am I in? Am I out? I, I don't know how God feels about me today, which just produce feelings of insecurity and uncertainty. And then this, there's just no way God can keep forgiving me of sin. It's just too much. 
And so I'm just going to live my life out in guilt and shame. That will be my lot. This is, what the re, this is what the writer of Hebrews is calling a conscience of dead works. The blood of Jesus has purified our conscience so that we can serve the living God. And here's how that should change our thinking. Okay? Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God, if you have received his salvation, his gift of salvation, you are enough because Jesus is enough. Jesus measured up when you could not. God is no longer angry. He's no longer distant because of Jesus. Now he is close and personal. We don't have to live with insecurity and uncertainty about God or our future because Hebrews tells us that Jesus is like, he's like an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. We don't have to walk around with this label of, of failure over our lives or, or loser gripping our minds. I don't care who said what to you. We've been set free from that. Because of Jesus, there is now a banner that flies over my life that says, loved and forgiven. You don't have to obey or serve God to get something from him. We now serve and obey God out of love for him. Everything's been changed. I can't get rid of external, empty, man-made expectations of religion those things that, that we add, the things that we add to Jesus to get something from God that we already possess. I can, I can get rid of all of that now. I can get rid of the, the external, the empty, the, the expectations. Jesus has done it all. What I'm trying to get, I already have it. And now I can focus and you can focus on the internal things. Praise God, we can rest and relax in what Jesus has done for us. We can rest in his love, we can rest in his grace, we can rest in his mercy, we can rest in his forgiveness and his righteousness. And I look at that and I go, what a greater way of thinking. I don't have to pretend, I don't have to perform. You don't have to pretend any longer. You don't have to perform any longer. Our conscience has been purified. Jesus has brought a a greater way of thinking. That greater way of thinking frees us up to love others unselfishly, doesn't it? When When we can rest in love, know how much we are loved and we rest in it, then we can give others love freely. It frees us up to serve God and to serve others without trying to gain favor, trying to get something in return, trying to one up someone. When, when, we are, when we already know what, who we are in Christ and we've been freed, we can go, I can serve all day long because I'm not, I'm not trying to measure myself up to someone else. I, Jesus measured up for me. When my thinking changes about God, my feelings about God will change and my actions towards God will begin to change and all of that will shape our lives differently. And so if you're here today and you, you are pretender. You're you're a pretender. You're just, in your mind, you're thinking, you know what? My sin's not that bad. Can I tell you something? It's it's worse than you think it is because it cost a man his life. The son of God went to a cross to pay for your sin because the holiness, the God's, his holiness is, we can't even get our, our, our minds around how holy he is. So he can't, even, he can't even look away from sin. It just, 
there's no acceptance of it. And so Jesus had to pay a price that we couldn't pay. And so you just need to know you can't pretend. Your, your sin's bad. And the whole thing of, well, at least I'm better than someone else. No, you're just as bad. Jesus made it right. So we can let that go. We can, we can let the pretending go. We can get off the treadmill of performance. And I, and I don't know about you, but man, I spent too many years of my life on that. Running, 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 trying to outpace someone else. Running, 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 thinking if I just run harder, I'll get in better standing with God, get more blessing from God, get this or that from God. You know, that just maybe I'll feel like I'm really enough or worth it. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. He's enough. And because he's enough, you're enough. He measured up so you don't have to. You can dismount and you can rest and receive the love of Jesus here today. Acceptance, you're accepted because of him. Self-worth, you are so... Self-worth, I mean, you got it because of Jesus. Can't, you can't get any more. You say, but what about love? Because I just, I want to be loved so much. The Bible tells us that the love that Christ has for you through Jesus is so wide, so high, so deep, you will never be able to actually get your mind around it. Couldn't be more loved. Yeah, but I'm striving to be more loved by God. Get off of that train. It's exhausting. It will lead to nowhere. You're loved more than you will ever be and more so than you'll ever understand. It's a better covenant. And it has nothing to do with you. It's all about Jesus. Doesn't that take the burden off you? Doesn't that take the guilt and the shame off of you? So, so wait a minute. So I don't have to obey and serve anymore? No, no, no. We get to obey and serve out of love instead of for love. If we get some blessing, it's a bonus. We don't try to go after blessing. We have all we need. So what should that do? Just free us. It should free us up. Some of you walked in here today and, and uh, maybe that's been your lot. You walked away from the church. You walked away from God. Come on back. You left for the wrong reasons. There's good news. Better covenant for you. I don't know about you, but some of you, you need to hear that today. Let the detox begin. Some of you have been detoxing for years. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. There's some of you in here today that, that you have never received the gift of forgiveness and eternal life and salvation that can only come from Jesus Christ. And today's your day. With heads bowed for just a moment. If you have never accepted God's gift of forgiveness for sin, I hope you know now there's nothing you can do to make things right with God because of sin. It's all what Jesus has done. And today, by grace, something you don't deserve, through faith, you can receive salvation and forgiveness. So how do I do that? It's not a magic prayer, but would you pray with me at this moment? It's all about your heart. Lord, at this very moment, I put my faith and my trust in Jesus. I ask him to forgive me. Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? I confess to you, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I can't earn it. 
I can't work to get it. It's all Jesus. And so today, I put all my faith and all my trust in him. Thank you for this gift. Now, Lord, help me to serve you and love you, not trying to get something, but out of what you just did for me, saving me from my sin, giving me new life and eternal life. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Now, I know it's Thanksgiving weekend. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but it's, it's uh, Blue Plaid Sunday. Very brave choice we made today. We did. Thank yeah. you for calling me. There's a few guys over there at the Blue Plaid, a couple over there. Thank you for the me- reading the memo. Yeah. Hey, there's nothing more, nothing greater than we have to be more thankful for than what we have in Jesus. Amen. Tonight, tonight, Paul, Paul's going to talk about hope for Christmas. Tonight when you put your head on your pillow, tonight when you put your head on your, on your pillow, this may be the thought going through your mind. Have I done enough today? Did I work hard enough? No, no. You need to rest. And here's the thought that should go through your mind. Lord, I served you today out of love. Lord, thank you for this love. I'm just going to rest tonight. I'm going to turn it all off and rest in how much you love me. Tonight, I'm just going to lay here, the guilt, the shame. I'm just going to throw it on the floor and I'm just going to receive your love and you just, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to turn it all off because you don't stop working. You don't sleep. You're still in control. I'm not in charge. Thank you. All because of Jesus, right? 